0: This is a class. And this is Mecca. And you're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and lessons in America. Mecca, tell the people where to find us. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, honestly, wherever you
1: find your podcasts. You can also find us elsewhere online at identitypoliticspod.com, on Twitter, at identitypolpod. You can also find us at facebook.com slash identitypolitics.
0: And remember, if you like what you hear, don't forget to tell us what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes.
1: Yes, cosine underscore double click. Now, let's jump (laughs) to today's episode.
0: Let's do it. (laughs) Happy, Happy holidays. holidays. <laughs> <laughs> Mecca, what holiday are you celebrating? What are you celebrating? I'm celebrating, celebrating
1: uh, the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate holiday also the movie the holiday with Kate Winslet and Cameron
0: Diaz oh my god I remember that movie that's like where they switch houses right like she goes to the UK or something yes what holiday are you celebrating um let me think is it Hanukkah is it Kwanzaa um no I literally keep telling everyone how I can't wait for Christmas because I'm like give me that long weekend I'm like don't we also (laughs) like at work I'm like are you sure we don't need Friday to like prepare for Christmas on Monday? (laughs) I'm like all here for it. A hundred percent give people as much time as they need. Yeah. Low key Christmas is the best if you're not Christian,
1: just because you get to go watch a lot of movies, eat a lot of food. Mm -hmm. It's like the country just gives you your own vacation for no reason.
0: I literally like stack up on snacks. I'm like, I don't even (laughs) want to leave the house except if it's like for the movies.
1: (laughs) Um, How are, are there like songs like holiday songs that actually get to you?
0: Um, I love that song. This Christmas. Na, 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 na. I, you know. I okay, know so it words. seems
1: like you know the words just as much as Patty LaBelle. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you've seen this video. It's from the 1996 National Christmas Tree Lighting, what? like a no, televised event <laughs> with like the president and members of Congress in the audience. And for some reason, no background singers show up. Why? <laughs> and the teleprompter is broken. And so Patti LaBelle goes up there and is like...
0: I can't with Miss Patty. She is wild. She is reckless. It's amazing. You have to watch it. I need to watch it. I also like, have to watch it because that's like my soul sister. Like Never know the words ever. Not afraid to hide it. Yeah.
1: So this Christmas, but only the Patty LaBelle, I don't know the words, where my background singer's at oh version my God. is the one that that's is going to get me through.
0: Crazy that she doesn't know the words. <laughs> um, but also... The other holiday I'm celebrating is well, I guess yeah. New Year is the New Year is technically a holiday.
1: Okay. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it totally counts. But I feel like with the New Year, right? Like, I'm not one of those people that are like live and die by the New Year. Like, you know, New Year, New Me. Like, gym membership. But it is a time where I kind of just like reflect back and be like. You know, did I accomplish the things that I wanted to do like professionally in my personal life? Um, So I've been thinking a lot about that just in terms of like best and worst. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I feel like the podcast is something to think about. I don't know if you've been thinking about it, too, like things that we did well this year, things that we didn't do so well. I feel like also people told us these things. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. It's never like things that we feel. It's like things that people tell us.
0: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Oh man. Um, yeah.
1: So yeah, I think in terms of like highlights, uh we were super ambitious with season three. We yeah. compressed it into half the time of season one and two and yeah. released the same number of episodes. I think that is a huge, huge highlight.
0: This is something that, you know, Joshua was like I can't, like, you've been so consistent, like, with the schedule, he's just been, like, so impressed, he's like, wow, like, you said you were gonna, like, produce these bi-weekly episodes, and, like, you did it, and so, yeah, so I'm sure, like, our listeners appreciate it, well, I hope you appreciate it, because we were totally thinking about you, and just, like, consistency, um, and producing episodes, and very intentional about the topics that we covered, and so I was happy that we were able to do that this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next year. I think
1: season four is going to be big things popping and little things stopping. Hey. Yeah.
0: Also, that was the subject line of our first newsletter. Yeah. So if you aren't subscribed to another tab, please, please, please subscribe. I promise, like, we deliver really good content. Like, I literally, Mecca, when you posted, when you included the article, I'm um, sorry, not the article, but the podcast from Radiolab. Uh, oh, More Perfect. More Perfect. I was like, my own newsletter, putting me on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, I read your, the article you posted from ProPublica about like all the black women dying in childbirth and yeah. then I was like, why am I getting my news from you? Why? So, because why so, not <laughs> get your news from your Twitter, friends? You're tired of those <laughs> news alerts, you're tired of everybody saying something on Facebook but you still want to stay informed, sign up for another tab and get our curated reads of the month and some interesting things that are making us uh,
0: think important but Yes and you should definitely look forward to good things in season 4 since this is our last episode. We're taking a break. We're going on a retreat. We've been talking about going on a retreat for ages okay. <laughs> so in 2018 we're finally going to do it and just like sit down and think about how to make the podcast like even better than what it is. Mashallah mashallah mashallah, mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we want to you know take it up a level for y'all so that's that's our Reflection from season three of this year, 2017, and moving on.
1: Yeah. And before we get into our episode, of course, we have to say thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to all of our supporters, people that are pitching topics, people that are inviting us to speak at your events, people that are reviewing us on iTunes, including us on your best of 2017. Yeah. Shout out to all those people. All of the love and we hope that it continues and we hope to be able to continue to earn some of your trust and and, and listens in 2018. Well, let's get into today's episode. What we're we talking
0: about at Klaus? Oh my gosh. So... Mecca, I like been, have been wanting to talk about this like publicly for a while, but <laughs> <laughs> I always like get so shy about it. Cause I feel like this is something that people are like defensive about or like people are really invested in these projects. Okay. I know if you're listening, you're like, what the hell is she talking about? Okay. Let me <laughs> tell you interfaith, interfaith work. I want, I want to talk about that. Um, when I'm talking about interfaith, that is just like, Okay, I should preface this with, Mecca. Okay, you know, uh, I was involved in interfaith projects for like pretty much most of my life because like, mm-hmm. I'm still pretty young. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> but, even into
1: like grad school. I yeah, feel. even
0: <laughs> into grad school. So like legit, you know, um, I was in like these interfaith programs and like traveling to other schools to like talk about my faith. Um, but it wasn't until I got older where I just was like, the interfaith I was involved in was pretty white like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was black kids traveling not only to white schools but rich white schools right you're like crossing the lines of like the segregated lines of like Atlanta right so we're going into Marietta we're going into Gwinnett and like going into these rich white communities to tell them about our faith right like this is what being Muslim is like. Because I mean, for the most part, I mean, no shade to like Christians. I don't mean this in any (laughs) sort of way, but like, right. We know about Christianity, And like, sure, I don't know all of the theological complexities, but for the most part, that's a narrative that you see run throughout our country, right? Like, people aren't shy to having movies about it and all of those things. So I love The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston. Hey, shout out, shout out. Sister Act Two. Yes. (laughs) Sound of Music. Yes. (laughs) Yes to all of the above. I love them all. (laughs) But, you know, it wasn't until I got older where I was like, damn, like, how am I supposed to think about this that? you know, this little black kid spent most of her life. And then, you know, this black woman spent most of her life being in these communities where it was considered to be interfaith, but felt more like, let me tell you what it's like to be Muslim. And, you know, I'm okay. It's safe to have Muslim friends, right? Like, we're not crazy. No, I totally agree. I've always had this
1: pressing feeling mm-hmm. that um, not just interfaith efforts but diversity efforts in general always flow in one direction right like it's like marginalized yeah, or minority sure. people going into predominant spaces and in this country that's that's white spaces white Christian spaces and trying to tell them about themselves or how mm-hmm. or trying to show them like how human we are and how like We are deserving of respect and empathy and understanding, like, just like they are. You're never, like, bringing white kids into our classrooms and being like, (laughs) you know, tell us about, like, your Thanksgiving traditions. Like, tell us about, (laughs) like, you're never actually asking them to step outside of their comfort zones. It's just, like, always flows in one direction. And it got me wondering, like... Are there any are there ways to engage in like interfaith work that isn't centered around like appealing to whiteness yeah. or like making white people comfortable like do you, do you even think that's possible?
0: I totally think it's possible, and I think someone that has written about this um, quite a few times, and she's a former podcast guest, like Dr. Jamila Kareem, where she always like even within her own family practices interfaith work, and she's like, I think she had an article on Huffington Post about this about her aunt, you know, um, and just like the relationship they have where it's like, let me tell you about being Muslim, but like not in this weird like power structure way, right? Because like that's, you know, her aunt and they're sharing just like within their own family dynamic, how they practice, how they work together, how, you know. And she was just talking about, you know, having this interfaith work among like black communities. And I think that's something that's really interesting because it's, yeah, you won't, I, I think most times you'll find black people where they have family members that are Christian, right? Or like sometimes they're like the mm-hmm. only Muslim part of that family and the work that you can just do within that framework with your own family is something I don't think that people think about or just interfaith the work within the larger black community or among people of color. Um, so I won't say that it's not happening, um, but I will say that we don't see that on a large scale because I don't think that people feel that same type of way about that work, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, let's get into today's conversation.
1: Um we are bringing on a friend of the show, I'd say an early adopter, like yeah. one of our, our earliest listeners and supporters. Uh, she's an anti-racism educator. Mm-hmm. She's an interfaith activist. She's a trainer and blogger. Of course, we're talking about the wonderful fabulous lady, Hend Maki. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So Hend is um, a Chicago-based, internationally recognized speaker and educator. She focuses on promoting interfaith cooperation, active citizenship, and developing Muslim women's leadership. You might know about her from her award-winning blog, Side Entrance, which is a crowdsourced website that documents women's prayer experiences in spaces and mosques all around the world. So let's get into our discussion with Hend. So excited to have her on the show. Let's do it.
0: So we are so excited to have you on Hind. We've been waiting a long time to have you on Identity Politics. So welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I love, love, love your podcast. It's an honor and a joy to be on it.
0: We're a sucker for testimonials, so thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: hashtag mutual admiration society. Yes. That's a long hashtag, but I love it. <laughs> we have 280
1: characters now, uh, I think. This yeah. is true. The game has
0: changed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so we have you on the show, and I, I already know our listeners are like, all right, we're getting ready to hear more about Side Entrance, which is your project talking about women in the masjid, which obviously, awesome, awesome project, so needed, so necessary. But we want to talk to you about something a little different today, which is actually your primary work doing anti-racism and interfaith work. And so, yeah, so we want to hear a little bit more about that, because I don't think that you get a chance to talk about that that much in the public. So what motivates you to do interfaith work? How did you get into it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is funny because when I do talk about side entrance or women in the masjid, I often have to preface by saying, I'm actually an interfaith and anti-racism educator, and the two are connected, uh, because I, I think that mosques need to be spaces where young people are empowered to learn about their faith in order for them to be able to navigate a religiously diverse society. Um, but you know, most people know my work, uh, for side entrance and, uh, women in the mission, but most of my life, most of my professional life, I've been in the interfaith field. I graduated from college with a degree in international relations, uh, looking at European African relations and looking at religious minorities within um, within nation states, whether they're in Europe or in Africa. Those were my two primary kind of uh, areas of study. And uh, then a couple of months later, 9-11 happened. I was totally catapulted into realizing uh, several things at one time. And the first is that, um, you know, America and life for Muslims and for people of color in America on 9-10-2001 is going to be completely different uh, from then on. Like 9-11 changed everything. And I think for a lot of younger people, a lot of millennials, they don't necessarily I mean, they don't know. They weren't really aware of our world pre 9-11. You know, of course, most of you all were around and alive, but you weren't like working in in the professional field at that time. Right. And um and really looking at how. So that was the first thing. The second thing was I looked at how the media and politicians were portraying um American Muslims. And, you know, uh President Bush said that, you know, American Muslims are not the enemy and Islam is a peaceful religion. Islam is not the enemy, et cetera. And he was getting accolades for it. For something that I thought was very basic, like clearly Islam is a religion and it's, you know, a way of life. And people who perpetrate terrorism are people and you can't really blame a religion for for what people do. Um, and, th- and you know, sort of I became very, very aware of how religion and Muslims were being framed in the public narrative. And then the third aspect was uh, my very quick and, um, let's say, being dismayed, a dismay of how a lot of Muslim leaders around me were responding to the
1: situation. Is you know, there, there was a lot of, more about that. I'm curious. That yeah. was dismaying. Uh,
2: I'm from suburban Chicago. I'm from a major city. And I was really uh, at this point, you know, just connected to the people here in, in, in Chicago and, you know, the varying Muslim communities, both um, immigrant from Arab and South Asian, as well as African-American Muslim uh, Sunni communities and my experience was, at least among the immigrant communities, was that there was a lot of fear. And uh, there was fear of the government, there was fear of our neighbors, there was fear of the situation. And so any kind of interaction that was made by our religious leadership with law enforcement or government or the media or our interfaith friends, um, you know, all of that came from a place of fear and not from a place of feeling like uh, we are U.S. citizens or residents and we have rights. Uh, We have the right to be here and we have the right to believe what we want to believe. And we also have the right to define our lives the way we want to define them without having, you know, some kind of uh, state or media uh, define who we are. And so, you know, for example, mosques, uh, immigrant origin mosques that before 9-11 would never have put up uh, a U.S. flag started to put up U.S. flags. It was a very, I thought, superficial connection with American identity without actually looking at the history of the United States. And specifically here, I'm looking at the racial history of the United States, looking at um, the experiences particularly of African-Americans, Muslim and not, but also Japanese-Americans, also the history of the genocide of Native Americans, looking, you know, learning about what COINTELPRO was and is, (laughs) looking at how uh, peace movements during the Vietnam War, um, you know, how they were seen by government and by media and by uh, mainstream culture. My community, the, the the mosque community that I was raised in, you know, had a lot of people who were deported. Either they self-deported because they were so worried or, you know, they were deported after, you know, they had to register after 9-11. It made me realize that a lot of my a lot of the immigrant origin leadership still felt like they were guests in the United States and not, you know, part of the United States, right? And if you're a guest you're not going to critique, let's say, systemic racism, even if it affects you. And that manifested in some of our interfaith work. The angle from which a lot of our Muslim leaders would do interfaith work was, oh, please, let me tell you about, you know, our views as Muslims so that you don't hate us.
1: Please, know, yes. Right. Can can we talk about that a little <laughs> <Yeah>. bit? Because <laughs> yeah. I this this is going to sound terrible. Um, I have like. Actively, like, not engaged in interfaith work. And it's, it's bad because in a sense, I feel often like it is performative. Um, you mentioned, mm-hmm. like, this, uh, feeling like, you know, some of the reactions after 9-11 being like, we are guests here. We need, you know, to put out these shows of solidarity. We need to put out yes. the American flags without really grappling with what that means. From your perspective, what does, Real meaningful, authentic um, interfaith engagement look like beyond like the photo ops of different faiths Mm -hmm. getting together. Like, beyond just like, I feel like there's always efforts to like start the conversation about something or like we'll, we'll build a relationship. And I think those are always means to an end. But like, what is the end that like good interfaith work should be working towards?
2: Yeah. I'm so happy you asked me that because it's been something that I've been grappling with, you know, for the last 10 years, actually, uh, this question of what does actually interfaith cooperation look like? What does it mean? What's the point of it? And um, what I think what the role interfaith cooperation could could actually play in a country like the U.S. secular, which is a secular democracy with a heavily religious demographic, is that it is able to bring people from different backgrounds, including people of no faith whatsoever, to identify issues that they care about And work on them together. And so it's really thinking about how, you know, what are our shared values as people of faith or as people who, you know, um, have some kind of uh, common bond as citizens or as members of the same city? And what are the challenges that we are You know, motivated by our own faith tradition to work on. So something here in Chicago that I genuinely care about and deeply care about are food deserts. We have food deserts in parts of the city that overlap with uh, racial gaps. Um, in, in the city of Chicago, and we also have a lot of Muslim liquor store owners, right? And so what um, what is the role of Muslims who, A, shouldn't be selling liquor to begin with, but B, you know, have stores in certain parts of the city where if they had If they could sell fresh uh, fruits and vegetables and clean meat from, you know, clean sources, preferably halal sources and offer them uh, as, you know, part of what they're selling to the communities that they're in. To me, that that is an interfaith initiative because you're working with people who, from a religious perspective, what does it mean to create holistic, healthy environments for the space that you're in? Um, and then you're serving people who are not necessarily of your faith.
0: Yeah. And so you just described interfaith work that like, I can 100% get behind, right? That's like Social justice oriented mm-hmm. interfaith. But then there's this other type of interfaith. And it's, I mean, it was something that I was involved in when I was younger. And then I started to feel like I was like a token and like being used, but interfaith where it's like, Hey, let me tell you about my faith and like you tell me about your faith. And yay, we like agree on these certain sort of issues. And then like we walk away from that and kind of just like talk trash <laughs> about yeah. each other's like faiths. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, So It it, it had that very like deep insincerity about it. And then also this other thing where you do have a camp of Muslims that don't really believe in and not I I should say this is not exclusive to Muslims, but they do believe that there is truth to their faith. And rather than like going in and be like, oh, I accept your faith. I accept your faith being like. Yeah, actually, like, I just want to invite you to my faith, like, right, like, I want to invite <laughs> oh you my to God. Islam. So like, how do you think about that interfaith work? Because I do think that's a really popular thing, right? Where people go yes. on retreats, wow. and they, they, they do that, right? So how do you balance that and the World of interfaith. I feel like I threw a lot at you there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are a couple of different questions there, but I'll parcel it out and I'll start out with the one that is the bane of my existence, which is mosques that have dawah committees that they call interfaith.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's <laughs> a thing. But I mean uh, I feel like people really believe thing. that's the only type of interfaith. And like I'm not even gonna laugh at that because I think there is some something to that and they have sources yeah. for that. Well, here's the thing. If
2: if it is genuinely someone's religious belief that the only way they can interact and engage with someone from a different faith is to call them to their faith, uh, you know what? That's your religious belief. You can still join the interfaith table. You just bring that that proselytizing part of your life. You keep that at the door. <laughs> yeah. You know, you really Fair. do. And how many times have I worked with a mosque And they have their little interfaith committee Is really actually da'wah And that doesn't, that is not Interfaith, that's not even the prophetic model Right, like when our first um, You know, one of the most prominent examples Of interfaith and interracial Cooperation among the early Muslims Was the first hijrah, right Where uh, a small group of Muslims Of course the Muslims at that time Were being persecuted by the Meccans And a small group of them were sent By the Prophet ﷺ to Ethiopia modern day ethiopia ruled by a black christian king and when um the meccans sent their emissary he's telling the christian king the the najashi oh these muslims they don't believe in your religion and you can't give them you know refuge here the muslims didn't you know their response was not to say hey uh najashi you better be a muslim like here's the truth (laughs) capital t they just said here this is what we believe about um Jesus, alayhi salam, and Mary, alayhi salam, and this is what we believe about God, the unity of God, and this is what we believe. There wasn't a call to have this devout Christian become a Muslim. It was just very clear, uh, presentation of what Islam was about and you know we know that the uh, the the king allowed the muslims to stay and they stayed there for a little while in pre- in peace and prosperity he gave them refuge and that that's one of our first um and major examples of interfaith and interracial cooperation from the early muslims now uh, <laughs> so it's really frustrating to <laughs> yeah. me you know because it is insincere it's you feel like Am I am I in this interfaith event so that somebody could proselytize to me? And I have been in spaces like that where, you know, people really want you to have a literal come to Jesus moment um, or, you know, and vice versa with Muslims. One of my pet peeves is when Muslims do interfaith work and they're not at all interested in learning about other faith traditions. They just want to tell their own and they're telling it from a very narrow perspective, from their own very specific uh, origin point. But for me, ultimately, also the point of interfaith work is to learn about other faith traditions. You know, I think it's such we're, we're we're living in such a time of mercy that we live in a religiously diverse country that we can learn about other faiths. Why not? It's interesting. Yeah. Right?
0: And I, I want to push a little bit here on that part. And I, I feel like this isn't something that we usually talk about. Right. But I when you have people there who are interested in learning about other people's faiths or like accepting and embracing, right? Or people who are like, hey, like, I actually don't believe that like Jesus is the son of God. And so like, how do I enter a space where I can't even hold that statement to be true and like be in a space where I'm like, oh, I can accept this. And this is one of the reasons why I think like social justice oriented interfaith works (laughs) versus like doing that back and forth.
2: Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. I think that for some people, they need that kind of that first kind of interfaith engagement. They need to be able to like open up uh, the New Testament or the old, you know, the Old Testament or, um, you know, the just any kind of religious scripture. And they want to have essentially a debate. Right. Even if. It's uh, couched in academic terms, like they're interested in sort of the minutiae of something of someone's faith traditions. They really just want to have a debate, and that's fine. You know, that's that's how you want to engage um, uh, at an interfaith level. But for me, I don't think that that's going to build a cohesive society, and that's what I'm interested in because I think all of us, uh, and again, even people who don't have a faith tradition, or people who maybe are like, let's say, Muslim, but don't adhere to like all of the you know all of the rituals and all of the pit and you know all of that 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 we might say oh this this is what makes you a Muslim. Still, people are inspired by their faith to enjoin the good and to forbid the evil, right? And for me, I gave the example of food deserts, but we could be talking about anything like gun control, uh, access to clean water. You know, for me, I was really um, inspired by by the Muslim uh, out, out, outpouring of support for our Native sisters and brothers, you know, who they themselves started the water protection sort of initiative as, as a prayer themselves because water is sacred, right? And and for us as Muslims, we believe that water is sacred as well. And we use water in our sacred rituals. And we are, you know, told, uh, you know, one of my favorite teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam is like even if you're making wudu in a running river, don't waste the water, right? So these are, these are you know, what we might term today in the 21st century as social justice issues that I think are tangible, concrete actionable items that people can come together across faith traditions and say, identify them as an issue and say, we want to work together. What makes what makes that interfaith like is this intentional conversation around what motivates you to care about this issue. And I think that's important too. It's not just, we're not just doing the work, but we're building relationships across religious lines by talking about why we care about that issue.
1: For sure. Man, and as you're speaking, you're just pulling out. Quran, Hadith, examples <laughs> from the Sahaba. And I'm just like over here, like, mm, yes, like nodding and like loving all of this. Um, because, you know, as you said, we live in a diverse world and I always used to say that like diversity is just a synonym for conflict, right? Like you bring different groups <laughs> of people together and like they don't know how to deal with each other. And so like this type yeah. of work is super important. But I was recently in a situation where I was invited to sit on an interfaith panel with a rabbi and a pastor pastor and I'm like a Muslim girl with a Wi-Fi connection and a microphone and <laughs> like asking to speak about like my faith traditions. And this in this particular case, it was our perspective on patriotism. it was a follow up to um, a talk that Kizer Khan had given earlier in the evening about you know his his story as an American patriot and like what that really means um, from our faith traditions and so my dad's an imam's I'm like frantically texting him I'm like asking my husband I'm like I'm like literally just like scrambling and I get there with these clergy Um, and it ended up being fine but I often do feel like especially with some of these panels um, because of the way in which religious Education happens. It's not always mm-hmm. equal for men and women uh, in, in yeah. our community, especially. And so then this representation game happens, and oh and there's God. a lot yeah. of interfaith events where you know there's one Muslim, there's one Christian, and one Jewish representative. And for someone like me who's not really trained on being able to pull out you know all the hadith and, and things that can support some of these efforts, it creates a lot of pressure to represent mm-hmm. well and accurately um, and symbolize you know what this entire community mean so
2: yeah, this long. Oh, r- girl, I feel you. <laughs> One of the very first like interfaith panels I was on, the rabbi who was uh, who was on it was like a rabbi and a and a Christian pastor. The rabbi spoke Arabic better than I did. Had a, like a PhD in like Islamic studies. Oh my god! And, and, <laughs> right, and like you know, you know, the Christian pastor, you know, obviously had gone to seminary and probably spoke like Hebrew and Greek and God knows what other other languages. And here's me with my very like intermediate French from my international relations background. But but here's what I say, and and, and I totally take what you say about uh, a power imbalance um, because of the way, you know, now we have uh, some Muslim seminaries in the United States that are becoming accessible to a lot of people. But, you know, um, not everyone has the time and the luxury and the ability to do a deep dive in the Islamic sciences. And we, In in Islam, we have our own uh, academic tradition, and that academic tradition is a very uh, rigorous study of not just of of Arabic and other, and but but also other Islamic languages. Of deep dives into the Quran, into law, into logic, reasoning, history, Hadith, um, exegesis, all of that, and you know we. Each each American Muslim today is called to be an interfaith ambassador, regardless of our academic uh, uh, background, regardless of our um, you know knowledge of uh, you know academic knowledge of our faith, historical knowledge of our faith. And I started to just think of myself as you know an expert of my own experience, right? I'm there's a reason why I'm a Muslim, and I know that. And so I just pull those stories and you know what inspires me to be a Muslim and what inspires me to do the output that I give out.
1: I, I really love that idea. And I, I think that's how I've managed it as well, right? Like mm-hmm. I often even like say caveats, like I'll give some broad statistics about how diverse the Muslim community is and say like what, you know, part, portion of that I can speak to and uh, just m- the limitations of of my own perspective and that I hope it can be illustrative of, you know, broader, bro- that there are broader takeaways. Um, <laughs> but I, I am curious, like how do you balance like doing this very like external facing education work and relationship building that's so important with also not representing like American Muslims or Muslims in general mm-hmm. as a monolith like do you do you feel like you have room or you found ways to showcase like intra faith diversity or like nuance in these collaborative efforts
2: girl yes <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the, this is the other thing too for. <laughs> Every every American Muslim I just mentioned, you know, is an ambassador. That that means that we have to a ex- accept and b honor the diversity within Muslim traditions. So I actually I constantly use the phrase American Muslim communities uh, because it's, there's more than one, um, as as you as you know, and as all your your uh, listeners know as well. But uh, we have to do better at learning um, the the learning stories and learning the experiences of people from different parts of our own of our own Muslim traditions you know and for me that you know i'm I'm a sunni Muslim um and I'm from the majority and most of my education has been uh, my religious education has been by other sunni Muslims and so I have to really work hard at learning about different Shia traditions and also like being able to learn, um, you know, and study and learn from different uh, parts of their experiences, not to speak on their behalf at all, but just to, just to be familiar with it. And I always, I always say like, you have your caveats. I always say, this is my caveat. I'm a Sunni Muslim. I identify as black, but I have an immigrant experience that is perhaps more normative, right? Uh, Arabic speaking, immigrant, Sunni, Muslim, right? Like that's a pretty normative experience. I just make sure to tell, let my audience know that I'm speaking from a particular perspective. And when I have the opportunity, I try to also pull out experiences from other uh, traditions, different Shia traditions, Ismaili traditions, um, you know, other African American, Bosnian, you know, really try I feel like we have to be experts or try to at least broaden our cache of stories. You know, we really need to know who we are as American Muslims. And we're one of the most diverse Muslim communities, I think, in history. So let's let's get at it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's something Mecca and I often, you know, go through with the podcast where we're like, you know we don't represent the entire american muslim community nor do we want to speak on behalf of other people so let's just bring them on the show <laughs> right I'm trying, and like even with that though you know we've gotten feedback right of like oh like you haven't had any latino muslims on and like oh just right like just it's like you push towards being inclusive and diverse but you also run the expense of like always leaving a group out. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a cycle and it's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's something that people can respect that you're like striving towards. Right. So, and I, I want to talk about white people. <laughs> <laughs> I always want to talk about white people. <laughs> so, um, Interfaith is kind of white, <laughs> um, and this is something that you've talked about. We know that you have definitely talked about this a lot of, like the uh, combination of interfaith and interracial work. Um, but I do, and I'm curious what you think. If you think the landscape of interfaith work right now is still pretty white, and if you do think so, how have you find how have you found ways um, to do interfaith collaboration that isn't centered around whiteness?
2: Mm mm-hmm. I love these
0: questions. Um, again, <laughs> we're glad that you
1: do. <laughs> I know. I'm like, are we hammering too hard? Because these are the no. things I really want to yeah. know.
0: <laughs> Clearly, we're interested in this. Like, we're like pushing you, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I love these questions. I think they're really, really important. I want to say at the outset, you know, you can't really do interfaith work in the US without engaging, you know, the largest group of of, of you know, the largest population of Christians who are white evangelical Christians, right? Yeah, and for sure. I, you know, so so I have, I have to put that out there. And I have, you know, in my last 10 plus years of experience doing this work, I have excellent examples of working really well with white evangelical Christians of different political backgrounds as well. And I think it's really important to always keep, um, you know, the lines of communications open um, with them, just because, you know, it is the largest religious group in the the country. Having said that, um, you rightly note that, you know, um, the landscape of the interfaith Field in the U.S. has been primarily white. And that, you know, I think there are different reasons for why that is. Um, One is that, you know, the history of interfaith work in the U.S. first started out in the early uh, 20th century, or the mid-20th century, first started out as being Catholic, Protestant, intra-faith uh, relations right and then that expanded after world war ii to include jews and so then it became ecumenical and these are primary and and we're talking about about white you know christians and jews we're not talking about like uh ethiopian jews and you know hispanic catholics and you know yeah. jamaican Protestants, no right? one like, like we- trying to engage that community <laughs> That wasn't the history. Yeah. <laughs> that was not the history of, of interfaith uh, uh, field in the of the interfaith field in the U.S. And um, and the other aspect of it is, and I've written and, and talked about this as well, is that interfaith work in the U.S. has tended to um, has tended to be also class based. And so communities of certain classes will, will work with each other, will engage with each other, um, oftentimes through seminaries or through their churches and synagogues or through their local communities. And so they're not going across class. They're not really going across race either because those two things are entwined in the U.S. So I think th- that's my that's my analysis of why it's been a mainly white affair. Um, and then the other piece, I guess, for Muslims is that when Muslims started to get involved or get invited into interfaith work, and here I want to um, specifically note, you know, the the Imam warath and din Muhammad community has had a long and, and illustrious interfaith um, history, but here I'm speaking specifically around immigrant communities. Uh, when immigrant Muslim communities were invited to, to join Christian and Jewish uh, interfaith events and initiatives really starting from like the, let's say mid nineties, late nineties um, that was also class-based. And so that, you know, that was something that it was primarily South Asian um, as some Arab Muslims, immigrant and immigrant communities working and engaging with Jews and Christians who were primarily white and who were from the same class, Uh, background so so that's that's one aspect it's a huge problem because as we were talking about earlier for me and i think for you all like um one of one of the most important aspects of interfaith work can be the social justice aspect of it and if everyone that you're talking everyone at the table is from the same class um and they have the same priorities and they they don't really they're they're not really equipped to see how to build solidarity with people from other classes then that's all they see and then it becomes really an academic exercise i think and maybe you know they're able to build relationships with each other on a personal level but they're not able to eradicate systemic injustice which is what the challenge is i think for any person of faith in this country
1: I wanted to draw back to a point that you made earlier in the conversation. I keep re- reflecting upon this image of like the American flags outside of the mosques. Right. And like yeah. how I remember that, like, I remember, you know, I lived in one kind of neighborhood. I went to school in another kind of neighborhood and they're both Muslim, but there are class differences. There are racial differences. Um, And you could just see, depending on what part of town you were in and who had a flag outside and, and who didn't, you know, what their backgrounds were. And And so picking up on this idea of, you know, People from different classes not necessarily doing uh, collaborative work together, people from different races not doing collaborative work together. I I know one holdup that I've had in really diving deep into interfaith collaboration and and interfaith work, um, as opposed to the occasional community drop-in now and then, has been I... How do I say this? I'm like allergic to feeling like I'm supposed to be appealing to white people um, and appealing to their better sensibilities to like, yeah, to, uh, to approve of me or or to accept me. um, And I think Everything that you state, like with regard to historical context, with regard to relationship building, with regard to social justice, like it sounds so good, and I, and I love it. But I, I I wonder is my assessment? I feel like Muslims were were still there, um, for the most part, um, in terms of a lot of the, let's say, uh, most widely celebrated and and uplifted interfaith efforts. Being mm-hmm. focused on kind of mainstream approval, um, and, yes. and assimilation rather than kind of this, this is, this is what I bring to the table. This is what you bring to the table. We can work together and accomplish beautiful things together. Like, do you, do you think there's a way for our community to like move past that or at least add different types of, of efforts into the equation when, when we're really trying to talk about doing this work?
2: Yeah, I hope that there is. And I, you asked earlier if there's, um, you know, if there's a change in the interfaith landscape and um, a racial change. And I think that there is. You have like Reverend Barber um, and Moral Monday or the the Moral Majority walks uh, that he leads. I think that um, yeah, what is it called? Moral Mondays. <laughs> and um, I think I think that there is. A newer, let's say, millennials and, and other younger uh, clergy who are racially diverse, g- diverse in terms of gender and orientation, who are really talking about living their faith out loud. And, it you know, their faith isn't just something that they sort of worship in a closed you know, building on a Sunday, Saturday or Friday, but it's something that they're literally marching on the streets for. I think this is something that can bring in a a wider variety of of Americans, but also a wider variety of Muslims to the interfaith field. And I really want to see that. And, And I've been seeing that actually, I've been seeing that, um, Around you know issues around social justice and being able to bring in you know the the reason why a Muslim person is inspired to to be part of of that right so people are not afraid to say, "Well, as a Muslim, this is why I care about domestic violence or this is why I care about um, you know food deserts and I think that is really different than some of the earlier uh, and when I mean earlier, I mean like in the 90s and, and the 2000s post 9-11, um, you know, of, of Muslims who were doing interfaith work. And mo- that was mostly let me tell you about the five pillars. Let me tell you about why, how we are. Not a threat. Let me tell you about how well integrated and well educated and and wealthy we are as a community. Um, I want some of that wealth. What is this? <laughs> right. and, and it's actually not even true. Like I, yeah. a few weeks ago, I was uh, I was presenting at, you know at a mosque because I am doing you know mosque uh, inclusion stuff, and you know I shared a uh, statistic about the, you know, the fact that American Muslims are the religious group most likely to uh, report being, um, you know, having a salary at or below the poverty line.
0: And that is true. Yeah, that and, doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's true.
2: Yeah. And and I got so much pushback from a particular uncle in the audience who was like, where did you get this, you know, information? And why are you saying that? Like, we're a wealthy community and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, uh, uncle, I actually don't. I actually don't use the term uncle when I'm in those spaces. I just say brother. <laughs> Seriously, you know. Like, first of all, I am a little—I am older than what I look. I'm a black dog crack.
0: But yo, of all, yo, like... you really are. Like when you started the conversation, I was like, "Him's a millennial." <laughs> Wasn't I'm, she in I'm, fifth grade during 9-11 I'm, Like what? So confused. <laughs> I'm, I'm like in the borderline.
2: <laughs> I'm in that weird ether between Generation X and Millennial. <laughs> but but yeah, black don't crack. And I am actually a little older than what most people think. But in that kind of a space, um, you know that gender power politics <laughs> race thing, I'm always like brother. Uh, yeah, i had to push back at him, and I said, listen, like we as a muslim community yes it's true we do have a lot of wealthy individuals right like 20 i think it's like 20 percent of american muslims uh households make over a hundred thousand dollars um that's that's just 20 percent. that's not 100 percent of the muslim community and we have a <laughs> yeah. vast oh you know, and it's really critical for us to to say that this is part of who we are as a as a community therefore it should be part of our priorities therefore when we do our interfaith work you know why? Why should we be ashamed of talking about who our community is and what we prioritize because of
0: who we are and because of what we believe? I don't, I'm still, you know, I, I'm still laughing at him though because I'm like, he's like, what? <laughs> all my friends are wealthy. Like, <laughs> he's like, who are these Yo. poor people you're talking about?
2: Yeah, no. I mean, he really—he uh, wasn't looking at the data at all. He was just saying that, oh, well, American Muslims are are rich. I was like, well, I'm not rich, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you know, this is data, my friend, and it's really important for us to to say, you know, what it's true. Like, we do have a lot of wealthy people in our community. Let's use that as an asset, right? And and let's not talk about that as something to say, please, you know, let's assimilate into the power, the existing white power structure without critiquing white supremacy right and here I want to say like there's nothing wrong with being white right like there's nothing wrong with being a white Christian person but there uh, there have been systemic injustices in to, that serve white supremacy in this country. And I believe as Muslims, Islam is a religion that is inherently anti-racist um, and that we have tools as Muslims to try to challenge uh, racism, that equip us to challenge racism and specifically anti-black racism. And since this is a country that was built on racism, specifically anti-black racism, let's do that. Why do they think that we're here? And I often say that to, you know, immigrant communities It's like, why do you think that, that God placed us here? Like we could be anywhere. I could be in my, my parents' country. You could be in your country. You, you know, we, why are we here in this country? And I always tell them, you know, and maybe this is overstepping my boundaries as somebody who's not, a, you know, African-American, but I always say to them, you know, the very first Muslims who were brought here, who the very first person to say Allahu Akbar in the, on these lands was an enslaved Muslim from West Africa. And these were people who were not able, uh, not of their own volition, but they were just not able because of the systemic injustice to pass on their faith to their children or to their grandchildren right because of the system of chattel slavery and i can imagine that these people would make dua very sincere dua to god that islam is maintained in their children and in their dhurriya which is like you know their descendants and that's the reason why there are a number of muslims today few million muslims today in this country not because of our own volition, not because of anything that happened in our own countries, but God is answering the call. Um, You know, it, God is answering the, the dua of these people who are oppressed to yeah. have a group of Muslims in America, whether they're of African descent or not, who are well-educated, who are wealthy, who are well-connected, and still not, you know, trying to eradicate or challenge systemic racism in this country. It's like,
0: come on. And, and that's something that I often reflect on too, of like how I am literally the answer to someone's dua, right? And I know Mecca has also written about this. I think after you wrote, you saw 12 years a slave, you had a really long, uh, blog post about just. It wasn't that long. I mean, <laughs> sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to say long. I meant to say very thoughtful and reflective. And I mean, that is something that we have to really think about and, You know, in our work that we do and why we do what we do and doing what, you know, we don't actually do, but we should. Right. Because someone did all of the work and then to ask for us to be here. So we've asked you a lot of like hard hitting questions that you're probably used to and have already heard like a million times before. (laughs) But now we want to take it a little bit lighter do you have any Christmas parties on your calendar this winter, or <laughs> not? <laughs> or Kwanzaa? A, maybe you do that too, or <laughs> or, uh, or Hanukkah
2: parties. I haven't been invited to anything so far, but I'm always willing to go. I, you know, I love Christmas, <laughs> girl. We do too.
0: <laughs> we love. Like, uh, I, you mean holiday parties? Oh, oh I love yeah. <laughs> <for> Christmas. <laughs> Still, still the, on the I, Billboard charts, that song. <laughs> I will
2: say Merry Christmas. I think merry is such a fun word to say. And I will say Merry Christmas. Like, I'm not somebody who, like, wants to, you know, uh, take away people's religious, uh, you know, holidays. But uh, I love Christmas music. I really do. I love, like, you know, how lit up and, you know, pretty and excited people are it, around Christmas time. It's really fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, I don't feel like it takes away from my religious background to go to a Christmas party. I would appreciate some invites, my friends, to go to
1: the Christmas party this year. That's a good plug, good plug. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we wrap up here, you know, we always... Um, Well, before we wrap up, I I just want to thank you again for your willingness to come on, for your willingness to engage with some questions that we've had. You know, we really value your voice in our community. I think in the anti-racism work that you do in the interfaith intra-faith education work that you do, um, as well as, you know, pushing for inclusion on a gender basis, on a racial basis. Like, it's amazing that you do so many things and you have the same a number of hours in the day that we do. So first of all, I wanted I'm to thank hustler. you for that. <laughs> um, but we wanted to ask, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? We covered a lot of ground in the discussion today. But are there any takeaways or things maybe you didn't get to share that you want to close us out with today?
2: Yes, a uh, couple of things. One is, um, that if you are doing an interfaith event or you have been invited to uh, be the Muslim <laughs> at an interfaith event, um, you know, make sure, tell tell the organizers, you know, ask them who else they have on there because I think, you know, it's America, it's 2017 and there's no reason um, and I've written about this in the past as well, but there's no reason for the Muslim speaker to not be a Latina or the Jewish speaker to not be African American or the Christian speaker to not be uh Asian American, right? Uh, this is, it's 2017 and these are the stories. This is what religion looks like in America. We have white Sikhs and, you know, uh, you know, we have Arab atheists and this is what it looks like in America. And I think it also will help to open up that conversation that when people invite a Muslim to an interfaith event, they're expecting an amorphous brown person, you know, um, when in reality, our uh stories as American Muslims are it's not just one story it's like three million stories so let's let's do that so that's my advice and you know that's not to say don't take the invitation but just give that suggestion for next time and give them a name um, and of course as well think about gender diversity, think about age diversity, sectarian diversity, um, and, you know, make sure to help them figure out how to tell the story of American Muslims. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, I'm reading this really excellent book right now that I think everyone should read, (laughs) um, called, uh, The Fifth Season, by NK Jennison. It is a fiction sci-fi by one of the very few African American women who writes sci-fi. Um and it is a really excellent intricate tale that it, you know is probably a metaphor, but also discusses uh kind of systemic uh injustices coming from slavery, talks about environmental degradation, what that can mean to a society and the philosophy of, of how societies hold themselves together. And also uh, has three really fantastic, strong female protagonists. So I highly suggest people should read fiction in their life and you should read this book by NK Jemison called the fifth season.
0: Well, wow, thank you for those recommendations. I'll definitely have to look into that book. And where can people find you? You're kind of all over the internet. So let yes. people know where they can <laughs> find you.
2: You can find me on Twitter at Hindmackie, Also at Side Entrance. You can find me on my blog, sideentrance.org. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, at head and also side entrance and uh yeah i'm i'm also happy to come to your mosque i'm happy to come to your msa whatever like you can also find me in real life (laughs) Um, (laughs) but uh but yeah social media yeah that's the best place to find me
1: Thank you so much, Hen. This was an incredible discussion and I benefited a lot from it. And so thanks again for always being willing to share your wisdom and perspectives and expertise. This is really great.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited. I love your podcast and I'm super thrilled to be invited.
0: Identity Politics is a podcast created by Ikhlas Salim. This episode was produced by Ikhlas Salim and Mecca Ali. Intro and outro music RSPN by Blinking Kit. Until next time, thanks for listening.